So we're reading from 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son in the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever way we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding 
so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, beloved. In the Lord, it is good to be with you. It has been a joy and a privilege to uh, open God's word with you these, these mornings. Um, I have an older brother, and just occasionally in my childhood, that was a useful thing. Um, he was at the same secondary school as me. He was a couple of years above me, and uh, that, was, that was useful. It didn't hurt having a bunch of guys you knew who were two years older. That offered a certain level of, of protection. But it was particularly useful because it turned out our third year physics exam, I don't know what that is today, year something else, but when I was there, year three, year three physics exam, it turns out that exam hadn't changed for a few years. And my brother could still remember some of the questions and and he decided to help me and said, Sam, there is a question everyone gets wrong on that exam and I can remember exactly what the answer is, and and this is the question, and this is what the answer is. And I was like, oh, okay. That doesn't sound like the right answer, but okay, fine, great. Good to have that intel. So I went into the exam, and there was that question. So I thought, okay, well, I know the answer. I've got the scoop. So I, I selected the answer that I was told was the right one. And the teacher who was invigilating that exam, who was overseeing us, just happened to be walking past my desk as I selected that particular answer. And he stopped and he looked down at my desk and he said, are you sure? (laughs) Now, he was a PE teacher. And I I don't want to disparage any PE teachers in the room, but when your scientific acumen is being questioned by a PE teacher, it's probably time to to rethink. But I thought, no, 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 my brother has told me, so I said, no, I'm I'm good. And eventually we we piled out of the exam, and uh, I was saying, hey, that question, you know, I know what the answer is, and it's, you know, my brother told me, and this is the answer. Well, when the results came back, I found out I was wrong. (laughs) And... My brother still maintains that it was a genuine mistake on his part. We're not, the jury is still undecided on that. But I mention all of that partly to embarrass my brother, and that itself is, is reason enough to do so, but also because it is common for people today to say something like, it's good to have faith. Everyone needs to have faith in something doesn't matter what that is, as long as you have faith, that's the thing that counts. And uh, my dear brother, if he's he's taught me nothing else, and I like to think he's taught me nothing else, (laughs) has shown me that actually there is such a thing as misplaced faith. Well, we are coming to the the final sections of, of John's letter. He's beginning to tie things together. And just as yesterday, we were looking at the difference between Genuine spirituality and synthetic spirituality, genuine love and synthetic love. Today we're thinking about genuine faith, genuine belief, and synthetic belief. So we're going to think about this in in three ways. We're going to think about 
the sign that it's real, the evidence our belief is based on, and the assurance it leads to. So as we think about our faith in Christ, firstly we're going to see from verses 1 to 5, the sign that our faith is real. John has been giving us these these tests that we've gone through throughout the letter, each time giving us a slightly different perspective on it. And what he does now in these first five verses, is he binds these three tests. Remember, belief, obedience, and love. He binds them together. So we begin with belief in verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Uh, being born again means we believe. Um, it's not that we believe and, and God therefore gives us new birth as a, as a reward. We can only believe because he's given us new birth. We need to be brought alive in, able, uh, in order to be able to believe. But he immediately shows us that belief is connected to love. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. When we've been born of God, we love him. We begin to see him as he truly is. We see his beauty, his glory. We love him. And John says, and if you love the Father, you love whoever has been born of him. We also find ourselves now with a love of those who belong to him. It is hard to love someone if you hate whoever has been born of them. So a dear, some dear friends of mine back home, Connor and Crystal, just had their first uh, baby, a little girl, and they were excited for me to come round and, and, and meet her, so I, I did, and it was, we had a lovely time. She's beautiful. Um, it was good to, good to meet her. Now, imagine at the end of that evening of, of being with them and of meeting their baby. Imagine at the end of that evening as I left, imagine I said to them, listen, it's so good to see you both. I really do love you both. You're such dear friends of mine. Oh, I hate your baby, by the way. <laughs> Ridiculous, you know, what an annoying baby. But I love you guys. I hate your baby. They would wonder if I really was their friend. And they'd be right to wonder. And similarly, If we love God, we don't hate those who've been born of him. We love those who've been born of him. So belief, love, and then obedience. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now it makes sense, the first part makes sense. We think, yes, we know we love the children of God when we love God because The children of God are children of God. And so our love for him and our love for them go together. But it's fascinating that John says, by this we know we love the children of God when we obey God's commandments. I can't love my brothers and sisters without being obedient to God. Partly because God commands me to love them, so I'm obeying God by loving them. But more than that, I am loving them well when I am walking in obedience to God. In other words, I will never be loving others well if I'm not walking in obedience to God. Uh, There are two wonderful women at my church who, for many years, were a couple. They were 
a lesbian couple for about 15 years or so. They lived at that time down in Alabama. They had a daughter, and one of them adopted another girl, so there were four of them. And several years ago, over a period of some months, the Lord brought both of these women to, to faith in Christ. As it happens, one of these women is my pastor's mother-in-law from an earlier marriage. And so as they came to faith, she phoned up my pastor and his wife and said, we've, we've become Christians. And we, we want to come back to, to church. And we're thinking maybe we should come and move up to Nashville and join your church. You're the only church we actually know. And my pastor and his wife were thrilled and said, that, that's wonderful, we'd, we'd love to have you. And they, they said to my pastor and his wife, but, I mean, here's the four of us, how does this work? How, you know, we're, we're followers of Jesus now, how do we do this? And my pastor said, why don't you come and live with us? And we'll figure it out together. Prior to being a pastor, he'd been... Uh, in the construction business, so he, he built some extra rooms onto the house, built some extra bedrooms and some, some more space. So they, the four of them came and moved in with him and his family, and they began their, their journey with Jesus. Uh, these two women are, are great friends of mine. I, I remember meeting up with them a few months after they had moved, and I said, listen, you, you know, you've been a Christian a few months now, how, however long it's been. I said, do you miss being a couple? Yeah, you were a couple for 15 years, and now, you know, in the world's eyes, you're just good friends. Do you, do you miss being a couple? And they said, we are so much closer as sisters in Christ than we ever were as lovers. God is love. And so when we live in obedience to God, we are actually finding better ways to love one another. The world will look at my two friends and say, well, they've gone from a higher form of love to a lower form of love, from romantic love to friendship love. They would say, no, we've gone from synthetic disobedient love to real love. Because we love one another best when we're walking in obedience to God. Verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. It's an expression of our love for God that we, we walk in obedience to him. And here's what we begin to realize. As we walk in obedience to God, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's, it's difficult. We're, we're denying self and taking up our cross as we go in his ways. But the more we walk in God's ways and live in obedience to his commandments, the more we realize they're not burdensome. They're not easy, but they're not burdensome. They're good. The more we set ourselves to live as God has designed us to live, we see the goodness of his ways. And we, we begin to find ourselves thinking, yeah, I can see why God has commanded this. This is the right way to live. I'm, I'm not going against the grain of, of who God has made me to be. I'm, I'm actually going with the grain by obeying him. And we remember those precious words of Jesus from Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we live in obedience to God, we realize God's ways are not inhumane. God is not giving us too much. No, verse 3, his commandments are not burdensome. So we see that these three tests go together. I've, I've given the heading for these verses, the sign our faith is real, because the sign is that we have the presence of those three things together, belief, love, and obedience. If we think we have any of those things without the others, we don't have them at all. Those three things are distinguishable, but they're not separable. And John goes on to say that as we see the sign of those three things in ourselves, we can have assurance because, verse 4, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And John so wants us to see this point, he, he uses the word overcome like five times. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Sorry, I can't count. He says it three times. Uh, the world is a daunting place to be a Christian. Uh, there are our own sinful inclinations that we know so easily go after things that are not right. There's pressures and temptations around us. But if our trust is in Jesus, we will overcome. We can be assured of that. Because the victory has already overcome the world. In verse 4, Jesus has already overcome the world himself. Um, I, I'm sure the most famous logo in the world is the, is the Nike swoosh. And whoever came up with that was not paid enough money because that has been an extraordinarily successful logo. And Nike, it turns out, was, the, I think, the Greek goddess of victory. And so the word Nike means overcome. So next time you see the Nike logo, logo on, on any piece of footwear or any, any clothing, remember to yourself that through faith in Christ, we overcome the world. So firstly, the sign our faith is real is the presence of belief, obedience, and love. Uh, secondly, verses 6 to 12, we see the evidence our faith is based on. Faith in Jesus matters. It matters that our faith is in the right thing. So why should we believe in Jesus? The Bible never speaks of faith being blind faith. Faith may be in something we can't see, but we have reasons for putting our faith in Jesus. Huckleberry Finn may have said, well, faith is believing what you know ain't true. And uh, many other folks will say things like that today. It's believing something there's no evidence for, but that is not biblical faith. Uh, you may remember back when they, they made good Indiana Jones movies, uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, there's a scene towards the end of that movie where Indy has to, to cross this chasm and find the Holy Grail and save his dad's life. 
And he doesn't know how to get across this chasm. He's just stood there. There's this massive gap, and he doesn't know what to do. He just knows he's meant to get across and that he has to. And so he starts to realize, okay, I need to have faith. And so he stands there saying, I must believe, I must believe, I must believe, I must believe, and psychs himself up into faith to put his foot in front of him. And and lo and behold, it turns out there's a, a bridge there that was so camouflaged against the background you couldn't see it. And so many people think that's what faith is. It's summoning up some inner sense of belief that we've got to work ourselves up into. But that is not biblical faith. Biblical faith is based on reasons. And John shows us why we have faith in these verses. He specifically says our faith is based on the testimony of witnesses. And in verse 7 he says there are three. There are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood. So in verse 6, he begins by talking about the water and the blood. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Now, you will imagine lots of people have scratched their heads and gone, what's, what's the water, what's the blood, what's he talking about here? The most likely explanation seems to be the water refers to Jesus' baptism and the blood refers to Jesus' death. Those were both events where it was made public that Jesus is the Son of God. When he was baptized, we had the voice of the Father proclaiming, this is my Son. At Jesus' death, the centurion says, surely this is the Son of God. Both those events were witnesses, the water and the blood. But then he talks about a third witness. He says, and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. In other words, the Spirit testifies too, because it's the Spirit who brings the truth of these things to us, the Spirit who enables us to understand and to receive these things. It was the Spirit who led the apostles to record these events and and write them down and explain them in the Gospels. Jesus had promised them that the Spirit would lead them into all truth, that he would help them remember, uh, that the Spirit would help them to remember what they had seen and heard of Jesus. And the Spirit now helps us to see those things too. And behind all of that testimony of those three witnesses is the testimony of God himself. So verse 9, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater In other words, John is saying, listen, we we believe other people all the time. I mean, we we have to. You you have to take people's word for it in life. And we do that all the time. We, we, We find ourselves daily believing the testimony of men. I won't be the only one who's who's come to the Lake Districts with a with a book of walks and hikes. And here are, some, here are some routes to take. There's a, here's a route up Skidor. Here's a route up Helvellyn. And you follow the book. And the book says you park, go to this place, park here, exit through that gate, go up this path. When you get to the stile, hop over it, turn left up the stone wall, and so on and so on. And, and you trust it. You are receiving the testimony of men. We do it all the time. Hey, where, where are your facilities? Oh, they're, they're down the corridor, down there on the right. Hey, does this, does this have nuts in it? No, 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 you're, you're fine, you're fine. We, we receive the testimony of men. 
And so we have even more reason to believe the testimony of God himself. And John says in verse 9, this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. God's testimony is that Jesus is the son of God. And therefore, verse 10, whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So what's going on here? When we hear or read of what Jesus has done for us in his life, his death, his resurrection... We are hearing the testimony of God. And so when someone comes up to me and says, well, you know, I'd I'd like to investigate Christianity and I've I've got a bunch of questions. Um, I'll I'll say to them, great, I'd I'd love to to hear what your questions are and maybe that you want to find out a bit about the historical evidence and there's there's resources to help you do that. But more than anything, I'll say to them, listen, if you've never read a gospel, you really need to. I'll help you answer the other questions that you have, but the best place to look to find out why you should think about being a Christian is to read a gospel. I want them to see Jesus in action themselves. And I'm thinking as they do that, they have an opportunity to hear the testimony of God. As they see the life and ministry of Jesus, as they see him turning to the leper and moving towards him in love and compassion, not recoiling from him, as they see Jesus responding so tenderly to those in distress, as they see Jesus challenging those who are being hypocritical, as they see Jesus laying down his life as a ransom for many, as they see Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand, I'm praying they will be hearing the testimony. The three witnesses which behind which we have the testimony of God himself. So verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The best way to be convinced of this is to read a gospel. And maybe even to pray. We've got nothing to, do, to lose by praying. And I'll, I'll say to a friend, listen, why don't you read this gospel And just pray that God would show you that you can find life in his son. If God doesn't exist, you've not lost anything by saying that prayer. But why not try that? Verse 12, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. So the issue again is not do you have faith? The issue is, what is your faith in? Occasionally someone will say, well, you know, I I wish I had your faith, I just don't. And in most cases what they mean is, you know, I'm not quite as simple and naive as you are. But it's kind of nice that you are. I'm glad you can believe these things. But some of us live in the real world. 
And I want to say, well, you do have faith. You're trusting in something to get you through the day. What is your faith in? And what are the reasons you have? Let me show you what my faith is in, and there are reasons for having that faith. So we have the sign that it's real, the evidence it's based on, and then thirdly, the assurance that it leads to. Uh, We looked at this verse on Monday. John says, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The gospel was written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The goal of the letter is that you might know that you have eternal life. His aim with the gospel was evangelism. His aim with this letter is assurance. So he now ends this letter by outlining what we know because we believe. The, the, the confidence our belief gives us. And so he ends with a series of affirmations. And the first affirmations concern prayer. So verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have towards him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We now know we have the ear of God. Because of what his son has done for us. Um, One of my favorite pictures is an old Photograph, a famous photograph of President Kennedy sat behind the desk in the Oval Office, working at the affairs of the country, whatever it is, doing a Sudoku, who knows. But sat there at the desk, busy working away, and underneath his desk is his his little boy, John John, just sat on the floor under the desk looking up at the camera. And it's such a beautiful picture because that man is the president. But there is someone who can toddle into that office and just sit on the floor under the desk and and play. I can't think of another room on planet Earth that has more layers of security than the Oval Office. There are kings and prime ministers and presidents and big deals who don't get to just walk into that room. But a little toddler can. And it's as if, as he looks at the camera, he's saying, well, yeah, he's your president, but he's my dad. So I get to be here. And in Jesus, we have that same privilege. Jesus has opened up his sonship and folded us into it so that we now have going with God what Jesus had going with God. We can now approach God with the very same intimate confidence that Jesus did. We get to call God Abba, just as we heard Jesus call God Abba. Not because of what we've done, all because of what he's done. And so we know because we come wrapped in the name of Jesus that our Father hears us. It's why no prayer is ever wasted. There's never a bad time to pray. And more than knowing we're going to be heard, verse 15, if we know that he hears us in in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. God wants us to ask of him. We're not bugging him when we do. 
I was uh, reflecting with a couple of friends who were parents, and I was saying, you know, I love how the motivation to pray is that we, we have a father who loves to give good things to us. And it made me realize, you know, you, you parents, you love giving good things to your kids. You love it when they come to you asking for things, and you think, yeah, I, I, I want to give that to you. And they said, yeah. There, there's a limit, though. With, with human parents, there is a limit. If your child is coming up to you asking you for things every 10 minutes through the entire night, you are not equally receptive by the end of the night. That's not a function of you being a bad parent. That's a function of you being a real, actual human being. But God does not have the limitations that we have. Even that the biggest-hearted parent has a certain level of capacity beyond which they can't go. But we never, we never exceed God's limits. We never wear him down. As a, my pastor loves to say, God is not tired, and he's not tired of you. He's the one person in the world right now who's not tired. And we don't need to worry about wearing him out with our prayers. He's not like us in that respect. All of us have limits. All of us can only cope with a certain number of people needing us for things. But we can know that God hears us and loves to answer our prayers. Now, John puts in that, that, that understandable caveat, we can ask anything according to his will. It's not that God is just a vending machine and we can, you know, whatever selfish thing we want, he will give us. He's a good parent, not a bad parent. Uh, Tim Keller once said that God will either give us what we ask for, or he'll give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. And it's a reminder that prayer is not about trying to twist God's arm to do what we want. It's not bending God's will to ours. Prayer is the way in which we bend our will to God's. It's why in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus begins by, by telling us to pray for the things of God before the, we ask him for our own needs. We pray for his name. We pray for his glory. We pray for his will. We pray for his kingdom before we come with our own needs and our own requests. And there's a particular area of prayer that, that John encourages us to pursue. In verse 16, John says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask God, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. So John is talking about sins that don't lead to death, and then says there is a sin that does lead to death. And again, it's one of these things people think, well, what's, what's this distinction here? Sins that don't lead to death, sins that do lead to death. Well, most likely what John is, is talking about, the sin that does lead to death, is what he's been warning us about throughout this letter. It's turning away from Jesus. We know that's been going on. There are people who have, have walked away from apostolic Christianity. People who've evolved their understanding of who Jesus is so that it's no longer what the apostles said. 
And that's the sin that leads to death because if we're not coming to Jesus and confessing him as the son of God in the flesh, we can't receive life through him. John's just told us in verse 2, verse 12, whoever has the son has life. The sin that leads to death is the sin that stops us coming to the son. It's the sin of rejecting him. So John says there is sin that leads to death. I, I don't say that one should pray for that. He's not saying you can't. But he seems to be suggesting that it is better to pray for those whose sin does not lead to death. In other words, if we think back to chapter 1, verse 7, how we walk in the light and confess our sins and, and be honest with each other, the more we start to do that, the more we understand where each other's weaknesses are, where each other's vulnerabilities are, we can pray for each other. I can think, okay, I know, I know my friend is, is, is heading into this situation and he's been kind enough to be honest with me about his own sins and I know going into that situation is going to be tough for him, so I'm going to be praying for him. Praying that he doesn't, he doesn't sin. And if he does, praying that God would restore him. I'm very blessed to have a number of friends who, who very regularly pray for me. Uh, one of my, my Nashville mums sent me a message yesterday saying, we've been praying for you every day this week. And I know she does any time I'm on the road. And I wonder how much sin I've been kept from because of her prayers. So we have confidence in prayer. And in the, in the final few verses, John shows us we have confidence in our security in the Lord. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's the point he was making back in chapter 3. He's not saying we can't sin. He is saying it's unthinkable that we would go on in sin that we would make our home in sin, that that would become habitual. He then adds in verse 18, but he who was born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We have protection in Christ. The evil one does not touch him. He, he cannot now lay a finger on us. It doesn't mean there's no temptation. Paul warns us in verse uh, in, sorry, in Ephesians chapter 6, that, that the devil is, is firing, arrow, uh, firing fiery darts at us. But it does mean that ultimately, the devil won't harm us. In contrast, verse 19, we know that we are from God, but we also know the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So the evil one doesn't touch those who are protected by Jesus, but those who are in the world remain in his grip. And it's sobering to think that. It's why we, we long people would come to Jesus. 
But at the very least, we have security in Christ himself. I'm not looking at however many years I have ahead of me of, of being a Christian, however many years that happens to be. I'm not looking, thinking, yeah, I've, I've, definitely got, I've definitely got it in myself to stay the course. No, I'm thinking, he who was born of God protects. God may give me more than I can handle. He will never give me more than Jesus can handle. And so I can have confidence. It's not down to my strength, it's down to Christ's. When someone says to me, hey Sam, how's your, your Christian life going? I, I know what they mean, but, but in one sense the answer is, how's, not how's my week been, but, but how's Jesus doing? If Jesus is doing fine, actually I'm okay. Well, verse 20, we have some final affirmations. Uh, John is in, is in Twitter mode. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. We know the Son of God has come. It's hard to deny that. As I said the other day, his feet left footprints in the ground and his life has left footprints in history. We know that he's come. We know he's given us understanding. We know that we couldn't perceive who Jesus is unless God himself had given us understanding, unless that the Spirit had helped us to understand. Which means we can know that we do know him who is true. I might doubt everything else in this world, but I can be sure on this that I know the one who is true. There's been various high-profile failings of Christian leadership in recent years. We've seen Christian leaders that we have revered, exposed to be people who were abusive, people who were unfaithful, whatever it might be. And one of the things that has given me such reassurance as we've gone through some of those scandals in different parts of the Christian world is to think there's no nasty, hidden side to Jesus. There, there always is the potential for that with one another. But we will never discover some dark, hidden side to Jesus. The only surprises we have in Jesus are good ones. He's even better than we thought he was. He's even kinder. We may know him who is true. And more than that, we are in him who is true. Isn't it reassuring to think that this Jesus I've now come to see, this Jesus I've now come to love and put my hope in, this Jesus is not, you know, at the other end of the universe, too far away for me to access. I am in him by faith. He has enfolded us into himself. He has come to dwell in our hearts and, and we have come to dwell in his. We're united to him that profoundly. I never need to, space, to, to spend a, a waking moment of my life 
apart from Jesus. He himself said, surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And this is how he is with us. He's closer to us than we are to one another. He is the true God and eternal life. John then adds in verse 21, it feels like he he ended the letter at verse 20 and then came back after a few minutes and thought, oh, forgot to mention idols. Verse 21, little children, keep yourself from idols. Right, okay, now I'm done. I knew I mentioned mention idols at some point. No, that that is not John sort of suddenly changing gear and, and going in a different direction, he's, he's summing up actually what he's been saying to us all through the letter. Because of what he's just told us, why would we go after idols? An idol won't hear my prayers. An idol won't give me reassurance when my heart condemns me. An idol won't make me more loving towards you. An idol won't transform me and make me more like Jesus. An idol won't give me confidence as I think about what might happen after I die. No, when we realize that we know him who is true and that we are in him who is true, in his son Jesus Christ, the true God and eternal life, we have nowhere else to go. I was talking with a, someone once, and someone who's not a Christian, and they were disagreeing with me about a particular ethical belief I have as a Christian, and they're saying, you just can't believe that today. I said, I know, I get that, I really do. But I said, you, you've got to know that I, I believe what I believe because I follow Jesus, and this is what he says. He said, well, just, we shouldn't follow Jesus then. I said, okay. Tell me one thing. Tell me what you've got going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that would make me follow you in this area of life and not Jesus. He died for me and rose again. That's where the bar is currently set. If you can <laughs> If you can improve on that, I'm genuinely interested. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Because what have they got to offer us? What has anything else in this world got to offer us that can compare remotely to what we have in Jesus? So let me finish with where John began. John says in the opening verses, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our and your joy may be complete. My brothers and sisters, may your joy be complete as you continue to look 
to Jesus. As you continue to look to the one who is the true God and eternal life. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we praise and thank you for Jesus Christ. We praise and thank you that you have enabled us to understand that he is your son. He is the one who is true. The one in whom we find real life and complete joy. Father, we thank you for the three witnesses. We thank you for the life and ministry of Jesus, his baptism. We thank you for his death and resurrection. We thank you that as we look at who he is and and what he did, we can see that he is the Son of God. We can see that he is the Christ. And we thank you for opening our eyes to these things. Our Father, please keep us. Help us to keep ourselves. Help us to have assurance that we do have eternal life because our eyes are on Jesus. And for our friends around us, our communities around us, Lord, that might have some understanding of faith in some generic sense, but don't have any understanding of Jesus, we pray you would help us to bring others to him. That others might themselves find what we have stumbled into. Our Father, we praise you for him, and we pray in his name. Amen.